Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Happy Thanksgiving, Hackaroos. We are excited to be back with you to look through the... uh, from a Republican point of view, the rubble, from the Democratic point of view, the miraculous victory that we call the midterm elections. And Robert Gibbs and I got together and we thought, to figure this out, we need somebody senior. And I don't mean old. I just mean senior, who also understands the demography of elections, the numbers, uh, what it tells us about our country and the demography of politics. So, Robert, who did we get? We, we couldn't get George Burns, the original senior idea. He's dead. So we went to plan B. And who was it? Murphy, I think you're going to love this. I got somebody who's senior twice and not that old, right? Mm. So one, he's a senior editor at The Atlantic. He's also a senior political analyst at CNN, the one and only Ron Brownstein. Excellent, Ron. Hi. Hey, guys. Say goodnight, Gracie. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the one way we should have introduced him, Mike, and I'm, I'm saying this in all seriousness. If you've, if any of our listeners have had a smart thought about politics, Quickly check Ron Brownstein's Twitter feed. Almost assuredly, he wrote that piece 10 days ago. So, yep, I agree. I agree. FYI, Ahead of the curve. If you've had an even remotely smart idea, you're, I'm guaranteeing you, you're 10 days behind Ron. Ooh. Thank you, guys. Well, we, we have a lot of Biden chow. We have Georgia. We have Trump, the, the much like, uh, uh, Liz Truss, kind of the cabbage that's starting to wilt a little, but it's still a pretty big cabbage in the GOP. But let's start, Ron, with you. We, we're now, you know, a couple of weeks past the election. What have we learned? What do we know? What myths are true? What election night blather might have been false? And let's just throw that around for a while yeah. and we'll get into people in the future. So I would say the big picture is that we saw that this election deepened and confirmed the basic fault lines uh, that uh, we have seen uh, harden really throughout the century, but particularly since the Trump era. I was always dubious, as you know, of the red wave theory, um, much less the red tsunami. Um, I thought what I wrote in October was that we were heading toward what I called a double negative election in which voters' disappointment with uh, Biden's performance and the state of the economy would be constrained by their continued resistance to the Trump-era GOP and the belief that it represented a threat to their rights and their values uh, and, in many cases, to democracy itself. And I think we saw this play out in um, very distinct fashion on either side of the red-blue line. It was pretty clear that even with three-quarters of voters saying the economy was in bad shape, candidates in the mold of Trump could not break through in the blue states and even the swing states, right? Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, uh, and Wisconsin, four of the five states that moved from uh, Trump in 16 to Biden in 20, they were better for Democrats than they were in 2020, which is pretty remarkable given yeah. uh, given where the economy was. It's 75% you know, saying the economy is in bad shape and it's the first midterm. Georgia is a more complicated story. I think on balance, it moved back toward the Republicans with perhaps one big gaping exception. And then the Republican hopes of big inroads into blue states, with the exception really of house races in New York, just didn't happen. I mean, Colorado and Washington, where you had real clear politics and other touting toss-up race, um, you know, Democrats won by 15 points in the Senate race. On the other hand, the other part of the red-blue divide, we did not see a meaningful backlash against Republican governors or state legislators in any of the states that have actually banned abortion. Right. I mean, if we're talking about Ohio and Florida, Georgia, Texas, Iowa, Tennessee, Republicans, you know, won these states easily, really suffered no losses in their um, didn't lose any state legislatures either. I mean, Brian Kemp won over 70 percent of white women in in Georgia and the numbers were comparable for uh, um, uh, DeSantis and Abbott. uh, Arizona being the one exception of a state where, where unified Republican control of government did lead to a backlash in the election of a Democratic governor. So overall, I think the 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 message to me is that Trumpism, the stamp of Trumpism on the Republican Party really limits its ability to win back the terrain that made Joe Biden president. Because I've got to think that this, for example, if this is as far as you can get in Michigan, 
with 9% inflation yeah, and totally. 75% saying yeah. the economy is in bad shape. It ain't going to get easier with 4% inflation in two years. It's a continuation of a trend <laughs> we've seen for three elections now, but it really broke through. I had it scored as normal midterm with a big inflation chaser is going to mm. beat cuckoo Trump candidates with um, some abortion younger voter turnout midterm wise by, you know, 60, 40. It turned out it was more like 55, 45 the other right. way in the collision of forces, which right. is really unheard of. Unheard it really of. is. Pretty, and I agree on abortion, but I think there was a young turnout thing, but it was generic. It wasn't like we got to go get Mike DeWine or we got to punish Kemp. It didn't get glued to candidates other than maybe the entire crazy Trump brand. Don't you think, Mike, it was different in the, it was different in the swing states than in the red states. I mean, like, Basically, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, as clearly as they could said, do not bring this stuff here. We right do up, not right. want your permitless carry, your abortion bans, your trans bans. We don't want any of this. In the red states, it worked well. there was kind of a shrug. I mean, yeah, there was a I shrug agree, at most. I agree. The, it, red's yeah. getting redder, blue's getting bluer, two tribes, two languages. Two, you know, it is, yep. the, the divide is growing. And my favorite definition of it is the county count. You know, Biden's 560 counties mm -hmm. at 70% of the GDP. Yes. Trump's massive 2,500 counties, 85% of the land area of the country, have only 30% of the GDP. And, you know, they're just in different places culturally. But Robert, chime in here. Straighten well, this Ron, up. I was going to say, well, no, no, I, I don't disagree with any of this. And, and Ron, you, you covered the 92 election where mm -hmm. it was the economy stupid, right? So, yes. you, you know, walk through a little bit, you know, just the idea, because I think a lot of us, I was a little bit where Mike was, maybe not as red tsunami or red wave as Mike was, but I kind of had that gravitational pull that, boy, the it's, it still is more the economy stupid but, you know, we, we've seen that really change. And go through the yes. arc a little bit of that, because we were talking about it before we started recording, and I don't want to miss that for people. Right. And, and by the way, I don't want to pretend that, like, I, you know, I, I had, like, the, the, the Ouija, you know, the Ouija board here in the sense that the one caveat I always saw in, in this, there, was, there really was no evidence of a red wave in the sense of a massive move in public right. opinion. The, the caveat was we have seen midterms before where the party out of power wins a whole succession of very close races and right, they right. all tilt the same way. They all way. break in one way. Yeah, yeah. And this looked exactly like that if you, if you yep. look at the last 20 midterms. Yeah. I mean, but right. the trend is this cultural thing is bigger yeah. now. Right. Thanks to Trump, by the way. Uh, well, it, well, I mean, he kind of pushed it further. Well, yeah, he, he, he took, he was the lightning rod for that energy to go kill Republicans, right. but it was still right. out so there. So we, you know, we, we have clearly, I think, moved into an era where cultural affinity trumps economic interest in shaping voter uh, allegiance. And, you know, when Obama won in 2000, um, I wrote in a, in a phrase that has either become famous or infamous that he had assembled a coalition of the ascendant, by which I meant that he had done best among groups that were themselves growing in society and that this would be a problem for Republicans. Four years later, when Obama got reelected, I, I kind of uh, put a second gloss on that argument because what became clear was that the opposite side of the coin was also really powerful. And I wrote that, in essence, the dividing line in our politics uh, at that point was between a coalition of transformation, which were the people and places who are comfortable with the way the country is changing demographically, culturally, and economically, and a coalition of restoration that is, I said, feels aggrieved by this or threatened by these changes. And I wrote that in 2012. And obviously, Trump turbocharged it on both sides mm -hmm. of the line. I mean, he increased the Republican margins among the groups who are generally uneasy about change, which, by the way, includes some conservative Hispanics, um, yes. culturally conservative Hispanics. Um, he improved the margins there, but he drove, you know, th there were white collar suburbanites voting for Mitt Romney in 2012. Uh, who are kind of uneasily in this coalition of restoration because they were basically uh, socially liberal. And that has moved, as we saw in 2022, even with their 401ks getting hammered, even with gas costing so much, Fetterman, Whitmer, Warnock, Kelly maintain the margins that Biden had in these big white collar suburbs of the swing states. So um, 
you know, I think that we are in a period where our politics is pretty inelastic. Uh, you know, uh, sides and and uh, uh, Lynn Var, you know, the the, the team uh, who wrote um, uh, uh, at UCLA wrote the book about the twenty four election. Uh, you know, basically talked about our politics being calcified, and I think that is because these cultural allegiances are not really that susceptible to being changed by, you know, how much it costs for gas. And yeah, they're not fickle. Yeah. They're, 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 not they're, fickle. They're, they're, they're locked in and they got a uniform for their side. And they're not going to be convinced that they were wrong. It, it, well, it's Yankees, Red Sox, you know, you don't see a lot of switchers. Totally. But the only, the only, again, the caveat on that is there is some portion of the country that is not part of this argument that is just simply not clued in or caring about uh, this debate what they, they there is still some segment of voters who are paying less attention to politics who are not really in the tribe who are, who are essentially voting on current conditions and that of course was the real risk for democrats but it didn't really burn them i mean democrats won independence won in this race yeah. which is astonishing in yeah, a midterm yeah. which is the classic frame though of, of how normally you would expect them to yes. lose them two to one in this economic yes. environment right well i think in 2010 murphy just to build on that, i think in 2010 yeah. we lost independence oh. like 80 20 i mean it was like yeah. it was well a, that was you it, and axelrod though it was, you were working hard to do yes. that. <laughs> it was pretty high it, all the uh, yeah, Robert, all the midterms going back to 86 when there's been a decisive midterm, the party out of power has won independence by at least double digits yeah, and often right. by a lot more. And even the 49-47 national really kind of understates it because if you look at what happened in the swing states, I mean, Democrats yeah. are winning independence by double digits in Pennsylvania and Michigan right. and Arizona. With inflation, with unemployment, with, with, with all the things that normally drive that the other way. I do think one thing to add to your formula, though is Trump is not just any political brand. He, he is a super magnetic field or repulsing field that it almost warps the physics of normalcy. And, I mean, he punches through stuff in, yes. at a high level, and that really that really super performed to brand these Republicans. And he had accolades winning primaries who were running primaries in the general election and were so radioactive. I mean, I would put Fetterman a little more in the Mandela Barnes category, but for Oz, who just was so despised. I saw that Fox poll a week out because I thought, I thought on the wave theory that, you know, Oz would narrowly, very narrowly win. And the unfavorable on Oz, yeah. you know, nine days out was just plutonium. And I thought, God, they hate this guy so much. Never, ever solved that. Never, ever yeah, solved yeah. that. If you look at poll after poll in Pennsylvania, that was the tell on this was his net negative favorability. He was more negative than Mastriano, who was at the Capitol on January. Right. And the more he campaigned, the worse it got. You know, I wrote in October that control of the Senate would be decided in states where, again, you had the double negative, majority disapproval of Biden, majority unfavorable on the Republican candidate. Right, right. right? And what you saw was that uh, I know in the national exit poll that people who were negative and, and, and the national equivalent of that, of course, was the na we, 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 Biden was at 55 percent disapproval, which should have been, you know, the kiss of death for right. Democratic candidates. But Trump was at majority unfavorable also. And people who were negative on both Biden and Trump voted like 55, 40 or something like that Republican. And so you say, well, maybe it didn't hurt him that much. No, 40% of people being uh, uh, having unfavorable job approval for the president voting for his party anyway is essentially unheard of. Yeah. It takes a lot to get that pass from the voters. You never see it. Yeah. Um, now, my question for you, Mike, I, I actually have a question that I don't know the answer to. You, you know, you've talked about Trump and it is uniquely lightning rod of capacity and people associate him with perhaps violence in a way they don't other, right. uh, you know, figures, but is it Trump or Trumpism? If Ron DeSantis runs essentially on a message of, you know, restricting abortion, uh, tightening, uh, restrictions on how teachers can talk and, uh, you know, all, all the red state social agenda, is it going to be vastly different in Oakland County, in Montgomery County, in Maricopa County? Is that going to really change or is that going to essentially be largely the same? I think opinions of Trump are so deep and so complicated and so locked in that he is a very special case. So I don't think it'll be the same. But if DeSantis runs an 80 percent Trumpism campaign with a scowl, um, he, he's going to get close and can easily defeat himself. But 
the difference, I think, between DeSantis and Trump as political animals is Trump is a madman with a, you know, a Bond villain genius for publicity and injecting himself and everything. DeSantis is a cynic. So I think the minute the primary is over, um, there's going to be DeSantis 2.0. It'll be a little retro. It won't be a run to the center, but I think he's not driven by out of control id the way Trump is. So he'll be more strategic. If he can get nominated and we're, we're going to kind of get into that, but you're right. This populist Trumpism is great for non-college educated white people who've been jerked around they feel by the economy and have grievance factors you know it, it, you can trace it back to wallace or even in in the lefty way mcgovern and bernie but when you get to the suburbs you get to college educated you get to economic interests that are normally telling a little republican but party registration may tell a little independent it's trouble because it's a bad brand you know it, it's a gas guzzling yeah. car at the book club in the suburb mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. it's a huge challenge let me follow up a little bit on ron's question because mike walk me through how DeSantis gets the nomination without putting himself such in that cultural space I, i'm feeling like you know when we saw in 2016 whether it was ted cruz or marco rubio they tried to out trump trump and then they figured out you know you know who's better yeah. nobody's really better at being trump than donald trump how, how does Ron DeSantis position himself such that he doesn't get so far into what Ron is talking about and yet still wrestle the nomination away from somebody who is not afraid to say anything? Well, what's changed in my view, and there's some data to support this, we're going to get a lot more as time takes on, is the Republican Party wants to win. Now, that doesn't mean they nominate Larry Hogan, God bless him. But if they see a more palatable candidate blowing some of the right Trump notes, but not as coarsely, I think that could be rocket fuel. As long as DeSantis has the right enemies, but not a wild man tone, and and looks like he's attracting support and is palatable and smells like a fast horse, he is totally in business. But, you know, maybe there'd be somebody else like that. What DeSantis has done so far is illustrate that you can be a Trump alternative and do pretty well and not be squashed out or thrown out of the party or anything. That there is a market for somebody who's not Trump, who's, you know, populist themes work. I mean, keep an eye on Kemp. Kemp ran for governor in Georgia as more than Trump. And it worked. Mm-hmm. And then he was reelected. Mm-hmm. He kind of got out the old Republican governor manual and became kind of a sober, pragmatic uh, conservative. And put together an unbeatable coalition despite Georgia becoming more purple and the, you know, the media's favorite bad candidate, Stacey Abrams, blowing herself up by trying again. So there is a model. Now, right now he's too heavy on the Dracula stuff, but I think I think you don't have to out Trump Trump to win the nomination. In fact, I think that's an error. All right, hold that thought. We're gonna take a short break and now a word from our sponsors. So we all have the same holiday problem. How do you buy a gift for the finicky people in your life that may already have everything or are just plain hard to choose a cool gift for? Well, that's where Uncommon Goods comes in because they scour the marketplace for the coolest, nifty, one-of-a-kind, different, you've never seen it before in the regular store product that can be the gift those difficult-to-buy people really, really are excited to get. Do you want something unique? Do you want something that's handmade? Do you want something that even somebody like the hard-to-shop-for Mike Murphy might like? Go to UncommonGoods.com. They have the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms, dads, teens, in-laws, best friends. You're one and only. And it's stuff you can't just find anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. So skip the gifts that scream last minute, Murphy. And find something (laughs) truly original at UncommonGoods.com. Everybody else runs out to the mall store and gets the same stuff. You can have unique fun gifts people will remember, including, including experiences. You know, ways to have fun and connect in new ways. So you can get tarot card reading, lunar astrology charting gifts. We can look into your, your future. Cooking mixology classes okay i know our listenership write that one down crafts gardening and so much more from art and jewelry to kitchen home and bar uncommon goods has something for everyone and with every purchase you make on uncommon goods they give one dollar back to a non-profit partner of your choice they've donated more than two and a half million dollars to date 
So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash hacks. That's uncommongoods.com slash hacks for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Check out all the cool stuff they've got. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. I think we should give some credit to Ron DeSantis. I know he vastly outspent, and I mean like 10 to 1 in Florida. But, you know, if you look at the the, the results in Florida, you, you would not look at that and think that's a swing state. That's a state with yep. a few thousand votes that has decided a bunch of presidential elections. You'd think, mm, that's not a state I'm going to spend a ton of time in if I'm the Democratic nominee. I'll come back to that. I mean, I'll say real quickly, we may be down to four actual swing states, I think, after this after and This, this is what I want to get into. You've been writing this, and I, I, this, I'm, this one I'm not so sold on, but I'm ready to hear your argument. Well, I mean, I, and, and, and I'll go maybe five. Uh, look, so there are 20 states that have voted Democratic in every election since at least 2008, and 20 states that have voted Republican in at least every election since 2008. That's 80% of the states have voted the same way in at least four consecutive presidential elections that's the highest level of consistency since at least the turn of the 20th century. Even yeah. when Roosevelt won four times in a row, only two-thirds of the states voted the same way. So right away, and of those 40 guys, I mean, of those 40, really, Nevada might be the only one of the 40 that you could imagine genuinely being truly up for grabs in 2024. So you're left with 10 states that have flipped at any point in the past four elections. And, you know, several of them were states that Obama won early on, and as you were saying, have moved toward the Republicans. And that includes, obviously, Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, Florida. It's hard to think of any of those as full swing yep. states at this point. Maybe North Carolina, kind of, but that is a say, stretch. I would have thought you would have put that in your other column with, uh, yeah. with Ohio and Iowa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's Close races, but... It's got one foot in there, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of close, but, you know, you can't quite get there as a Democrat. So that leaves you with, I'm leaving Nevada aside, uh, the five states that flipped from 16 to 20, which are Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin in, in the upper Midwest, and then Arizona and Georgia. Um, mm. I do not think you can look at this result in Michigan and say it is a complete swing state anymore. I mean, the, the ability- yeah, no, I agree and, with that. I mean, inflation is 9%, 75% of the state, you know, so the economy was in bad shape and um, Whitmer won by over 10 points and almost 500,000 votes. And and just to be clear, having looked at a bunch of those those counties after the election, just because I get obsessed with Michigan, yes. um, you know, some of the, the areas, the Oakland vote uh, and some of these other places yeah. are, are not, are not. We hadn't seen those margins since Obama ran in 2008. Yeah. As I remind people, I was on a bus in Michigan in September when we got the news that John McCain wasn't going to contest Michigan anymore. Mm. So they didn't play the last two months, and yet Whitmer is getting those kind of margins. 61% in Oakland County, more Crazy. even than Biden. Just as an Crazy. old Michigan hand, Oakland is changing slowly but surely because people are migrating Macomb. up from Wayne County. Well, Macomb is changing oh. the other way. You know, the yep, old yeah. Reagan swing Democom is becoming pretty strong on the red side. Although she won this it. election again, not only did she carry it, but Carol Marlenga, who was barely, you know, funded the Democratic old Macomb County hack, yep. almost upset his way into Congress. Right. Uh, with very little D trip help. So, yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I, I agree if you're now, by the way, this analysis is going to be page one of the Whitmer for President PowerPoint to donors. <laughs> so, so as we finish the list then, I think we would, as I said before, I think Michigan, yeah. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona were all better for Democrats in 22 than they were in 20. I think Georgia did snap back toward the Republicans with the possible big exception of Warnock winning uh, against Walker. But the, to me, Nevada is clearly a swing state. Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Evers won by 91,000 votes, but I think you have to consider that a swing state in a presidential year. Mm -hmm. Georgia is certainly a swing state. Yep. Is Pennsylvania? I mean, you know, Fetterman won by two hundred and twenty-five thousand yeah, votes yeah. after visibly. It, it looks like the old Pennsylvania now. Yeah, the pre-Trump Pennsylvania, but that—that's yep. an open question. I think. I think we don't. Yeah, added to. So four and a half. I mean, I think the only clear swing states are Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, 
uh, and uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh, and Wisconsin, I don't think Michigan is. We can argue about Pennsylvania and North Carolina, yeah. but it's possible that, you know, a country of 330 million people, we may be talking about four states that are themselves divided almost exactly in half, which means we're probably talking about, you know, I don't know, 100, 120,000, 125,000 combined people. Yes, yeah, one congressional district fulcrums yeah. the whole country. Whole country. What Ron is basically predicting is if you have a television in any of those five states two years from now, you're going to want to figure out how to watch TV without seeing commercials. Yeah. 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 Well, it'll be door to door giving cars and Cadillacs away. And with data now, they can just land upon those poor people like a ton of bricks. But let, let's let's turn this thing inside out. A year from now, people are going to say, well, the economy doesn't matter. We learned that in 2022. You know, if you if you look like Trump and the Dems are all going to think, great, we can't lose. We just call somebody Trump mm. and it's over. You know, mm. what are the wrong lessons that are going to get learned or the assumptions people make now that forget politics is always evolving? Yeah. You know, because they're going to say vindicated. We talked about abortion and Trump and we won. So that's the Democratic game plan. No matter what the economy is, no matter how, if Biden can remember his name or not, that, that is it. And I, I would be careful of jumping yes. to that kind of well, stuff. Well, like I said, I mean, what? first of all, one truth is that there are no absolutes, right? I mean, nothing. Exactly. Nothing completely defines a group, as we've learned with uh, Hispanic voters. Uh, there are always gradations. Um, and as I said, I mean... I think this was a double negative election. I mean, the, the second negative proved more powerful, the negative on Trump and the Republicans, he has recasted his image. But the first negative is real, too. I mean, yeah. you know, you had 55% of the country. I mean, the Trump thing takes work. I mean, creating yeah. that train wreck is not for the timid. I mean, they, right. they, they worked hard at it and they found crazy candidates with money. It, it was. It was. But, but you still have a neg you still have a, you still had a negative verdict on Biden from the majority of the electorate. And. Right. In all of these states, too. I mean, we have not seen candidates win Senate races in this century very often. I think Joe Manchin in 2010 may be the only one who won in a state where, you know, the approval rating for a president of their party was as low as it was for Biden in some of the places where Democrats nonetheless uh, won this year. But that that approval rating for him is real. I mean, you know, it's it, he's right. got a lot of work to do and right. he needs... You know, he needs, as, as one Democratic economist recently said to me, he needs the recession to start like the day after the election and to be worked out of the system by, you know, Labor Day next year with inflation down to 3%. Um, and, you know, if, if in fact, uh, any slowdown is over and inflation is a third of the level it was on election day, I've got to think that all of these states get a little easier for Democrats in 24 than they were in 22, but there is a level of personal doubt about whether Biden is up to the job that is independent of where the economy is. And right. so that is, that is against Trump, it's irrelevant. And who the Republican nominee yeah. is at such a big calculus. I mean, yes. I'm not sure I'd, I'd make a big bet, but I would make a small bet that if McCormick had beaten Oz in the primary and had proven to be an adroit candidate, which is an open question. But if those two things had happened and the focus was more on Fetterman than just and then on crazy Oz, the puppy killer lunatic who lives in New Jersey. Pennsylvania, I don't know. I look at that Fetterman margin, it's pretty big, but I don't know how much of that's Fetterman. So, you know, candidates are going to count next time. If the Trump factor, the thing that's bending the light wave, starts to back off a little, you know, then we could have yet another evolution here. Except the only way McCormick was going to win uh, was going to be to get the Trump endorsement, which mm -hmm. he tried desperately to get. He basically moved for a couple of days to Mar-a-Lago, ordered double room service to make the bill, the bill keepers happy. <laughs> and had he... Had he somehow won the nomination without Trump, he would have gone to Trump. I think he would have ended up going to Trump pretty quickly because Trump would have come to him pretty quickly. And I think you'd have this vicious circle of, of yeah. the Trump taint. We, we disagree on this. I think he would have done a Mike DeWine. Yeah, thanks for mm. the endorsement. You're wonderful. Love the economy under you. Wish you were that way now. On to the next thing. Kind of the, the way to put a concrete focus on this question of whether it's Trump or Trumpism. Mike, do you think you can get the Republican presidential nomination in 2024 without agreeing to sign any kind of national ban on abortion if the votes are there to pass it. Yes. You do. You don't think you have to commit to that. You say, I'm for the debate, we're going to have it. Pledge is that the, the pro-life people will make the pledge hard, and that gives you a way out of it. 
Mm-hmm. But we're see, we're see the pressure will be on, and I'm not sure it's a killer if you do say we're gonna we're gonna have a vote. I mean, the real abortion numbers, as you well know, well here here's the great secret statistic of abortion. No, you can't be for no obsessions. No, I, I think I I disagree. I think with or without exceptions, I lo- one lesson I take from 2022 is you cannot win Michigan, Pennsylvania, and maybe Wisconsin if you are proposing a policy that will ban abortion in those places. I just I, mean, I think with no exceptions. No, I don't. I don't think the exceptions matter. And with exceptions or no exceptions, he's saying I, even I, if you had six weeks, even if you had ten weeks. Yeah, in the old days, we used to elect a lot of Republicans statewide with no exceptions, and a few Democratic congressmen. But that has declined. I, I, I hear you. Well, no, that was before you could actually do it. Yeah, it was in a world in which Roe was settled and everyone right, yeah, right. I, like, Believe me, I remember I used to write the statements. Wow, you but, know, if you had seven or yeah. six people on the Supreme Court, we could do all these crazy. Th- I will never get there, and voila, here we are. I, I, we will see. We will see. I think Mike DeWine would disagree, but it's not as democratic as state. We will see. I don't think yeah, the next thing, say. if it is not a fire breathing lunatic candidate who can communicate that just on the tone, the personality, all the stuff that Trump's warped the electorate with, I don't think it's a foregone thing. You know, here's my favorite statistic I love to freak people out with. And I say this as a pro-choice kind of libertarian on the issue. There are more women voters who take the pro-life side of the question on the Pew question or the CNN Mm -hmm. one, which breaks it up in the four, than there are African-American voters. Mm -hmm. There is a pro-life vote out there. And for reasonable pro-life stuff, not no exceptions, yeah. But but some of the, you know, the, the, the limits, of course, no, no partial birth. I mean, you know, there's federal funding. You go through a whole bunch of issues and there are 60 percent issues in there, which can kind of blur the debate. Do I think it'll be the hinge? No. Do I think it's the platinum arrow if you rule out no exceptions and, you you, you know, a, a trimester limit or something like that? Uh, I don't know if it is the H-bomb. Depends what the other issues are. Depends on the tone of the candidate. The limitations that you're talking that seem passable are the ones that were already in inside of Roe versus Wade. I mean, this whole notion of, I mean, we had this argument maybe 15 years ago on partial birth abortion. It, it's it's not, it, it, it works. something that, it, but it's not something that happens. Republicans won elections on it. It's a different world when Roe is over. I mean, I, exactly. I was struck, as I said before, that in the red states that have actually restricted or banned abortion, there really was not much pushback. And as I wrote, you can look at the exit polls and candidates like Kemp and Abbott, DeSantis and DeWine, most of all, were winning somewhere between a quarter and DeWine won over 40% of voters who said that abortion should be legal in most cases, right? So if you had Republican-leaning voters in Republican-leaning states, uh, there was, this was not enough to dislodge them from their you know, ancestral allegiance. But if you look at Michigan and Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, you're talking about 80% of, 75% in Wisconsin, over 80% in Michigan and Pennsylvania of voters who said abortion should be legal voted for the Democrat, a much higher percentage than in the red states. And I think that there was kind of a, uh, you know, a picket fence built around those states. I mean, voters are very clearly saying, do not bring this agenda, this red state social agenda here. And, and I do think that if you are advocating for a national ban, and for that matter, some of the other national stuff, a national permitless carry law, which the House is going to vote on, or a national ban on how teachers can talk about race, or a national ban on, uh, you know, gender c- a conversion therapy and uh, a surgery um, uh, for minors, I think all of that is going to be really problematic in those states, with or with, whether it's with Trump or not. Um, and as you say, maybe it's not decisive. Maybe there are other factors, but I, I don't think you can underestimate how strong a signal those states sent. And for that matter, Colorado, Washington, you know, even Arizona of yeah. resistance to that agenda. Yeah. No, no, no I hear you. I, and there are different issues that have different formulas. We will see. I, I think the Democrats make a mistake to think it's easy kryptonite no matter what. And the Republicans make a mistake to push it too hard because it's not a big winner. It's purely a base play. And I think the biggest problem American politics and campaigns for 15, 20 years has been 
both parties treat their base voters mm-hmm. like swing voters and appeal appease them too much. You're not going to lose Republican primary voters in a race against Gretchen Whitmer because you didn't tell them you want a national ban on abortion. Uh, there's other rhetoric that works. So anyway, this has to be litigated. We will find. The issue more is can you win the primary? Exactly. Well, no, you say I'm pro-life. You know, then you you stop talking. I, I think it's. Gonna I be- know Gibbs, but you're you're telling me no, six no, months just- ago Trump can never be beat. We're we'll see. Right now he's in the most trouble he's ever had. I'll segue to that in a second too. But I think question Murphy. I mean, I do think it is vastly clear that Republicans in the states that were competitive haven't figured out the abortion answer yet. Right. Right. And particularly when you have a statewide abortion rights referendum on the ballot, which absolutely can't disprove that. But Michigan. Yeah. Right. But you, you, you know, they caught the car and they haven't figured out how to deal with it. I do think to your point, I think Democrats are, they should be careful feeling like their stature, their program, their policies won the election. Right. It was, it was a bit of comparison, a lot of comparison. And I, to Ron's point, I think Democrats have a lot of work to do in the next two years. Uh, a lot of it will, as your point says, who's the, who the nominee is for the Republican Party. But let me ask you this, Murphy, if it's Trump versus Trumpism, right? It, I would think like how to cut off Donald Trump would be number one on the agenda. Donald Trump just had dinner with he. a Holocaust denying white supremacist. And let me tell you what, the number of people that have spoken out against this, Republican senators that have spoken out against this are fewer than than the three of us. I know, I know. I've been yelling about it. It's a tragedy. I get it. Trump's crazy. That guy's an asshole. I'm with you on this. Shame on them. They can't win elections that way. <laughs> Maybe they'll learn. Maybe they won't. But walk me through why. Because all I've heard for the last two weeks is Trump is a stock that is bleeding quickly, right? And and if that was the case, why wouldn't everybody get out? Why wouldn't you sell your Donald Trump I stock? think there's plenty of smart politics in getting out, and I've told a bunch of them that. But this is like Rasputin. The last time he was stabbed, he came back to life and killed everybody. And then he was poisoned. He came back to life and killed. So they, they it's like Buddy Rich's funeral, a joke I, I have told before about the brilliant drummer who was also a very abusive yes. personality in Hollywood. Did you hear Buddy Rich had 10,000 people at his funeral? Wow, that's surprising for Buddy Rich. Oh, they were only there to make sure he was dead. So we a little more Trump decline we're going to see. There's an Orson Welles version of that, right, about Harry yeah. Cohn's funeral where he said but the line was around the block. And he said, you give the people what they want and they'll show up. (laughs) (laughs) Democrats work in two modes, pearl clutching panic or cocky arrogance. So now we're going to be in cocky arrogance for a while, which is every bit as Mm. dangerous. Even if the Republicans are wearing clown shoes right now, politics evolved and the clown shoe God is in trouble. And the trouble, I believe, is going to get worse over time for him. I can't tell you how much among regular Republicans that won't be seen in public with me, how much discussion there is of what do we do about Trump. And one of the things is there's serious conversations going on looking at how we nominate somebody. You know, there's Mm. uh, Mm-hmm. There's uh, a, a, a lot of thinking about all this. Well, as you say, because as you say, the the rules of the Republican Party benefit Trump. Winner right? take because all. Yeah, absolutely. They're much more winner take all, and what that means is whoever has the largest block in the party is favored, even if that block is not a majority. And in fact, in 2016, Trump had already pulled away from the field and become the presumptive nominee before he got to 50 percent of the vote in any state. Right, and at the right. point that he was the presumptive nominee, his total share of the vote was only about 40%. Yeah, it's a very key thing. You you basically smother everybody else. So you have a short jump to a position where it's very hard to compete with yes. you. The Democrats, because they all cried when old Yeller died, proportional, everybody gets some delegates. It goes on forever. To do it in the Republican Party, it's one RNC rule change. And then yeah. individual states can decide. Right now, the Republican decide, Rule right. 16 says you that proportional states are fine, they're allowed, but they can't happen until after March. Early. So the question is, that has to change yeah. and then let all the states decide. And if the big ones... And the mid-sized ones start thinking, hey, why don't why don't we have a longer process here, more vetting? Sure works for the Democrats. And I can guarantee you all the non-Trump campaigns are going to be for this. I've even yes. talked to a couple. So Interesting. You know, now, Trump has a lot of friends. You're going to have to deal with a hand-wringing of, like, what happens when this thing is still going out in the first week in June. Yeah. Now, we're taking it rather than Trump. Uh, one sobering point. By the moment Trump had already become the presumptive nominee in late April, he had only won roughly one, a little over one third of college educated Republicans. Exactly. So, you know, th- there was a focus, th- there has been a focus on recent polling showing that roughly two thirds of college educated Republicans want somebody else. 
That was true even in 2016. And it didn't stop Trump because he consolidated the non-college Republicans, including the non-college evangelicals, to a remarkable extent while the college Republicans splintered among their many, you know, the Kasich, Rubio, Cruz uh, uh, options. Uh, the question is whether something like that can happen again. Can, can anyone, can, you know, I, I kind of think that any of the options that we're talking about, whether it's DeSantis or Youngkin or Hogan, they're all mostly going to fish in the college pond. I mean, maybe DeSantis, I mean, who is a, who is a, Mike, who is a really strong competitor for the blue collar populist Republican vote that powered Trump to the nomination last time? Or are all these, all, all the rest, all these guys are basically going to divvy up the half of the party that doesn't want him and he's got a bigger piece of the other half. Well, I think it's a persona party now. So the process creates somebody like that. I think even Dan Crenshaw is kind of interesting. I mean, a lot of these people that could be superstars are unknown now, but they, you know, the process is good at making you famous. But the only one who's out there as a big quote-unquote brand right now is DeSantis because he's governor of Florida. He has a platform. You know, Abbott doesn't really qualify. Cruz yeah. is Cruz, you know, but, you know, these things create, originally Trump was a laughingstock in the process. The the platform by where he said, I'm against this, I'm against that. The plain speaking, I'm not a politician. I fired Gilbert Gottfried for not selling enough snow cones, so I'm a can-do leader. That transformed him. So I think in the modern media internet era, you can't underestimate yeah. how quickly somebody with the right messaging can get going. I mean, Obama, unknown state senator, turned one term, I'm going to be generous here, middle-level senator. Bingo. Blew up the whole Clinton machine because he had a message and he got a platform. And the right side of the biggest issue. The primaries really, like people talk about the primaries, the primaries really are like uh, billiards where each shot changes the, the table for yeah. every shot that comes after. So th that, is, that is definitely true. I think the problem is, I mean, until someone demonstrates that they can loosen Trump's hold on the blue collar half of the party, which is heavily evangelical. And I remember in 2016, Cruz thought he was going to consolidate the evangelicals, but the, for the non-college evangelicals, it was the non-college side that, that won out and most of them backed Trump and Cruz was left only with the college evangelicals, which was a pretty small not group. Enough, not enough. Not yeah. enough. And Trump also had parts of the country club, parts of the regular. Mm -hmm. Trump's appeal was bigger in the early moderate, states anyway. Moderate. Than, he had yes, a lot of moderate right, because he was the can-do yeah. guy who was going to straighten out Washington. People forget how much competence was the reason people <laughs> laughably now thought Trump would do something. But even then, even then he was mostly a non-college Republican. Even then, he was yeah. mostly a non-college candidate, even the first time. Let's stop for a minute and listen to a word from one of our fine sponsors. Murphy, as I'm sitting here and recording this wonderful podcast, I'm looking at afar and I'm seeing my aura frame and Ooh. it is cycling through amazing pictures I've taken. Yes, even I, with the help, can take an amazing picture. It's cycling through great pictures and great memories. Do you take a million photos, Murphy? I do, and they're all over the place. I don't know how to unify them, and i got to pull up my phone and scan, and it's a nightmare. The great thing about this frame is this little digital screen that can cycle through the photos you want it to. I mean, Axelrod has the entire original Politburo, and it's one after the other after the other. So it's terrific, and I'll tell you something. Now that the holidays are coming up, it is the one gift for friends and family you know they're going to like. This thing is, is a fantastic, fun gadget that really works. Dave, the best digital picture frame by the wire cutter, the strategist, and more. Aura is nothing like the digital frames from a decade ago. Every Aura frame is thoughtfully designed to fit any decor style with a stunning HD display, unlimited storage, super easy setup. We said even Axe can use it. Yeah. And no fees. Yeah, all you got to do is connect your Aura frame to Wi-Fi and use the free Aura app to add the pictures into the system and videos, by the way. You can do it from anywhere in the world. You can invite friends and family on the app and have their comment heart or have them send new photos to your frame. It's like a social network that brings you and your loved ones joy every single day through the gift of videos and photography. Here's why I know it's good. A couple of these things fell off the truck, which happens when we get a new wonderful advertiser, and our staff swiped them all. I'm, I'm I'm, you know, I'm after I wanted to give one to my wife, but somehow they're missing from Hex on Tap Global Headquarters in the tower. So when our people grab them, you know they're great. And the Aura Frame is exactly that, a perfect, meaningful holiday gift. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Murphy, you're just bummed because you were going to just package this thing up and give it to somebody. But do you know why? Because they <laughs> no, make great I ever do that. <laughs> they make great holiday gifts, especially for those hard to shop for folks in your life. Preload it with your favorite photos and even a personalized video message. And Murphy, there wouldn't even be any need to wrap it because every box is ready to gift. Take care of some of those names on your gift list right now. If you pick it up this week, listeners get $20 off Aura's best-selling frames. Just go to auraframes.com slash hacks. That's A-U-R-A frames.com slash hacks. Terms and conditions apply. And this thing has been recommended by a lot in the press from Wirecutter to Forbes Wall Street Journal. Check it out. Let's pivot to what it means for Biden and what we think is going to happen in the Georgia runoff. Gibbs, take us to Bidenville. Yeah, I mean, Ron, we, you know, an interesting piece in the New York Times today, which I think basically shows a lot of, of Democrats who a month, two months, even two weeks before this election were circling overhead and, and getting ready to pounce on President Biden to push him out of running for re-election, to make that announcement more quickly. Clearly, this this non-wave gave him mm-hmm. an incredible amount of space in order to begin to think through his own decision making. And I don't I don't know that he's come to that conclusion yet, but it's a vastly different landscape for him than it was ten minutes before those first state polls closed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is. The dog that uh, isn't barking or the dragon that isn't roaring. I mean, if, if they had had a bad midterm, we would be talking about this at, you know, uh, turned up to 11. There would be Democrats out saying that it would, that, that Spinal can't, totally. go, can't, can't yeah. go far with Biden. On the other hand, I mean, the reality is that, you know, in the exit polls in states that he have to win, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, uh, uh, among them, we're basically talking about 70% of voters saying they did not think he should, he should run again. I mean, he, he is standing in a hole at the moment, right? I mean, you-, you No doubt. Uh, now, the, the the question, to me, the question has always they been- They know that too. That would they be do the, know that. Yeah. But, but, but the question has always been, how much of this are circumstances and how much of this are a judgment about Biden that is not susceptible to being improved if conditions improve? I mean, we saw Reagan, Clinton, Obama yeah. all have a very similar first two years- get elected because of discontent over the economy largely. The economy doesn't improve as fast as people expected. Their approval rating goes down. Their party has a bad midterm, but then the economy improves. They improve and they all win re-election pretty comfortably, Reagan by a landslide. So is Biden capable of uh, you know following that trajectory if in fact uh, the economy slows down in the first half of 2023, but inflation is basically crushed and squeezed out of the system by late 2023? Is he going to be at a 48, 49% approval, which is where Obama was up until the right. very end? Obama didn't get to 50% until September of 2012. People have to remember. Oh, I remember. You remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, I remember. Is Biden capable of, you know, is a rising tide or a lowering tide of inflation capable of lifting Biden? Or does he have, you know, are there personal doubts about his capacity and his age? that will keep him stuck lower than you would need to be competitive in 2024. I don't think we know the answer to that yet. No, we I don't. Mean, I, no. I think I think the, the I think the answer is going to be somewhere in between. I do think that, you know, as I said, if this was as far as Republicans can get in Michigan with 9% inflation, I don't think they're getting further with 3. Um, but right. the the other half, the other half of this, yeah, the other half of this is real. I mean, you know, a, a majority of voters disapprove of Biden's performance. Two-thirds of voters in the exit poll said they didn't want him to run again. And he needs to, uh, you know, improve his image. Which The one one thing he's got going for him, in addition to uh, the kind of the possibility of the economic cycle, is that their core economic message is going to be more relevant in 24 than it was in 22. I think their core economic message is going to be that between the infrastructure bill, the, the semiconductor bill, and the climate bill, they have seeded this new generation of building things in America. And he, like when he went to that Intel plant in September and opened that giant plant, and by the way, made a point of saying something I I don't think I could have ever imagined Obama or Clinton saying when he noted, Biden noted that the plant would have as many jobs for community college graduates 
as it would for PhDs. And this, I think, is going to be the core of their economic message in 2024. All of these EV plants, all of these mm -hmm. semiconductor plants, all of these airports and bridges that, that, that he's basically triggered a, a, a renaissance of making things in America. And he could be opening, you know, as I say, Biden never looks happier than when he's around poured concrete and other elected officials. We're going to be make America great again versus made in America again. That's good. You should do this for a living, Mr. Gibbs. Well, by the time people listen to this, Air Force One will have left at exactly the type of plant that Ron's talking about in Bay City, up around Saginaw, uh -huh. which is a county that flipped back and forth in 2016 and 2020. Uh, and Gretchen Whitmer did really well in, and it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the sort of new American economy type county. He's going to spend a lot of time. I remember Obama during or after the auto bailout, he loved going to auto plants. And yes. at one point after we went to a Ford plant, uh, on, uh, in Detroit, he looked at me in the elevator and he said, the new rule Gibbs is we're not doing any event unless it's in an auto plant. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of something like that, of what you're talking about, Ron, with this new sort of American economy idea uh, with Joe Biden. It's a good pitch. I was stunned they didn't do more in the chips bill. Thank you, Gia Raimondo, because I thought that was a big winner, and I agree with this. On the other hand, the House Republicans are going to spend all their time investigating all this, and they're going to find some waste or something. Sure. So there's going to be the, – the other tribe is going to get fed a million reasons why this thing is terrible, which, of course, will be exaggerated. What was the other company besides Solenda? Solyndra? It was Tesla, wasn't it? Out of the yes. 20 Well, yeah, and he's now, you know, he's trying to become a tobacco company over at Twitter. By the way, I'm now on Post News, at Murphy Mike. And I think I just followed you today, Ron. Let's talk Georgia. Looks pretty grim in the polling. Looks pretty grim in the dynamic. Looks pretty grim when you spend more than 10 minutes listening to Herschel Walker talk. Is there some turnout theory where young voters don't show up? Because in the data, you lose them. Warnock's in trouble because it's a special. That's been the pattern years ago. I worked on a Georgia runoff for Paul Coverdell. But Ooh, if you ask me yeah. to bet, I'd say Warnock's holding the cards right now. What do we think? Undoubtedly, I think if you're in, if you've seen the, the first two days, the Saturday, Sunday early vote in Georgia, Big numbers in those Atlanta counties that are very Democratic. I think there's a chance the Secretary of State's office has already said that voter early voter turnout today, which is the first day of statewide early voting in right. Georgia, may be the biggest day of early voting in the history of the state of Georgia. So somebody's energized, and I don't think it's the Republican side. Look, if you look at the poll last week that our good friends uh, Anzalone and Fabrizio Anzalone and Fabrizio did for AARP. I think the killer for a Herschel Walker is his fave unfave with independent voters, 37 fave, 53 unfave. He's at a negative 16. Yeah, no, it's like Oz, they've decided. The only thing, I looked at that poll too, and I think it's the best yeah. current poll on the race, but a lot of Warnock is young voters. So he's yes. got to have them yep. show up. Yeah. That's a good early indicator, but that's the one hole in the thing. Overall, as I said, of the five states that flipped from 16 to 20 and made Biden president, Georgia most clearly uh, moved back toward the right yeah. to the Republicans. Uh, and so I suppose there's always that risk. But there were a lot of voters who, you know, certainly held their nose and voted for Walker when they thought he could prevent a Democratic Senate majority. And now right. that you can't do that, I mean, yeah. are you really going to come out again? You I lose your rationale of hold your nose and vote for Walker to stop the Democrats in the Senate. That's gone now. And boy, oh boy, that that's a lot. And there's nothing pulling them out in the governor's race, right? I mean, Brian right, Kemp right. is, you'd think he was up for re-election because he's in all the mailers, he's in all the ads now because there's not a Herschel Walker. There's a Kemp ad, I'm trying to figure out how many GRPs because I'll bet the Kemp people have an opinion about that, minimum sufficient. Oh, yeah. All right, we're going to leave for a minute to pay the power bill and then we'll be right back. I don't know about you, Gibbs, but as the weather gets cold, even out here in beautiful California, I like to snuggle up and eat at home. I've got an answer for you because I know you like to, too, and I know you like to eat. It's called HelloFresh. You've heard of it. It's where you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip those trips to the crowded grocery store, snow in the parking lot there in Chicago, and just count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. People love it. Murphy, the holidays are just around the corner and HelloFresh makes this busy time of year easier than ever with chef 
crafted recipes, and pre-portioned ingredients delivered right to your door so you can spend less time meal planning and prepping and more time relaxing, Murphy. Save money on dinner with HelloFresh and put it toward my gift, Murphy. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. Yeah, they work out the portions right, so it's a money saver too. And with over 35 weekly recipes, there's something to please everyone. You can also easily customize your recipe by swapping protein or sides or upgrading to special extra good proteins or even adding protein to a veggie meal. You get a lot of control. Quality is HelloFresh's priority. Ingredients travel from the farm to your home, Murphy, in less than seven days so you know they're fresh. I've actually tried HelloFresh, and I'm the world's worst cook. It's a miracle I didn't burn anything down, but it was easy. They know you're not the grand chef, so they break it down into steps. The portions are there. Uh, you can probably teach a really smart Airedale to do it, too. It's not hard, and it tastes great. So get those fingers typing and go to HelloFresh.com hack70 and use code hack70 for 70% off plus free shipping, and that's hack70. That's the magic code, and that's the URL. That's HelloFresh com slash hacks 70 and use the code hacks 70 for 70% off plus free shipping. Can't beat that. And again, remember, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. If you've got a question for the hack, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com. Okay, our first question is for Admiral Robert Z. Gibbs here, our, our spiritual leader. Stephen wants to know, are there structural reasons why it is better for the Democrats to have 51 seats versus 50 in the Senate? And this is what George is all about. Do they get more control over committees than they would in a 50-50 plus tiebreaker from the vice president situation when they have 51? Gibbs, what's the, uh, what's the answer here? Stephen, your answer is exactly that. It, the committee breakdown uh, in a 50-50 Senate is a 50-50 committees. It takes a lot longer to get uh, Ron Brownstein for federal judge out of the Judiciary Committee. It takes an extra series of votes. It takes longer to get it onto the floor. I know that sounds like a lame excuse, but the Senate moves at a glacial pace. When you get 51-49, it doesn't look like a lot on the scoreboard, but all of a sudden you probably have committees with two more Democrats then you have Republicans. So at a 12-10 Judiciary Committee, Ron Brownstein is a federal judge faster than you can say federal judge. So it is a huge deal, not to mention the other probably smaller point is 2024, the map is not going to look kind to Democrats, mm. right? There's Democratic yeah. senators up in Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who's really good at winning elections in Ohio, John Tester in Montana, who's great, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, I was going to have a tough time in a place where Joe Biden in 2020 only got 29%. So any we, we need all we can get to hold as much as we can after the 2024 elections. All right. For federal judge Ron Brownstein, who we just <laughs> yes. promoted on yes. this, um, Theory asks, I've been hearing a lot about how great a speaker Nancy Pelosi was. And one trait that is always brought up is how well she can count votes. I'm sure there's more to that than simple arithmetic. So I hope you can shed some light on this process, especially when there is a difficult vote and some members may need a not-so-gentle nudge to remind them what side they're on. Ron, what say you? Yeah, you know, I mean, this last Congress was pretty incredible given the Democrats started with, what, a five-seat majority. and we didn't really pay attention all the way up through it because um, so many of the things were derailed in the Senate, but they passed essentially the entire Democratic wish list and agenda. I mean, not only everything that was in Build Back Better, but a voting rights bill and a, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, a national election standards bill and the assault weapon ban and uh, LGBTQ protections and pay equity um, and it was really extraordinary. And a lot of that was Pelosi's skill. But I think also it is a reflection of just how much Congress is changing in our polarized era. It is becoming more of a parliamentary institution. And there is simply less tolerance for members getting off of the bus. She was a truly historic speaker who was great at counting votes. 
But I'm guessing that as we go forward, this is going to be more the rule than the exception, the ability to pass your party agenda, even with tiny majorities in the way that we've seen it in parliamentary countries abroad. Yeah, sort of like our elections. It is no, I wrote a TV pilot about this for CBS. You know, operating the House with the three or four vote margin, people forget that the House does not operate with everybody there. People get sick. Yeah. They go to jail. A weird special election goes sideways and you lose somebody on a scandal. You know, it's kind of like a margin of error thing or or, or like um, uh, high mathematics where you don't know the number, you just know the range. And we're, we're in that now. Uh, this is a very fragile situation. There's going to be a lot of drama. We thought we could get 200 episodes out of it. Ron knows this too. On the Democratic side, she was both equally respected and feared. Mm-hmm. And I think as you think through a, a Speaker McCarthy, you're seeing this already. I don't think there's any bit of fear on the Republican side of a Speaker McCarthy. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Our friend Steve Israel, who served with her forever in Congress, a smart political yeah. observer, told us that great joke about when you walk in her office, the first thing you see is a table with a beautiful crystal bowl full of chocolates from Giardelli in San Francisco and an enormous baseball bat. And you kind of <laughs> mentally start thinking, which meeting do I want to have? Yeah. Because she's from California, but her politics are from Baltimore. She wants yes. you to have that thought. All right, Murphy, for you, a question from Karen. With elections being so expensive to run, why don't the states which have a 50% minimum to win switch to ranked choice voting? Is there some advantage in runoff elections like in Georgia, which would be lost? Well, first of all, I'm glad Karen doesn't want to speak to a manager. Okay, I couldn't resist. Cheap <laughs> cheap Karen joke. Karen, I'm sorry. Email us. We'll send you a coffee mug for that public embarrassment. So that is a great question. The 50-plus thing, it's, it's kind of like the whole runoff model. You see a lot in the South for reasons of shame the Democratic Party can explain one day, uh, <laughs> a way to keep minority white control in, in, in uh, elections that a lot of African-American voters once upon a time within the Democratic Party. And Republicans have happily adopted. But the the 50 thing and ranked choice are different deals. I don't know why they have the 50 thing anymore. It's, it's unnecessary. But I think ranked choice is a great idea because it changes the incentives to have not just your supporters, but to be acceptable to other people's supporters. The great example this time is Alaska, where Senator Murkowski as an independent was able to put a bipartisan coalition together and beat a wackadoodle Trump opponent in a red state. And Sarah Palin lost in a Republican district because the Democrat won Mary, I apologize if I mispronounced her name, Patola. Anyway, I don't have it in front of me. I'm mangling the name. Sorry, Congresswoman reelect. Bottom line is it widens the incentives, gives more voters power. It's complicated, but it provides a good outcome. And so I hope we get a lot more of it. I think the Alaska example really shows the, the potential, again, uh, of yeah. this of this innovation. And I think, did Nevada pass it on a statewide basis? Uh, by, I by think it now goes to, I think you have to do it twice in Nevada. Twice? I yeah, think yeah, it now do. goes to another vote. It yeah. works like crap. You got to roll it twice. You know, that's yeah, a, there you go. But it is a great reform. And it's likely to spread, I think. You know, it is, it, it is one of the few things that actually has some potential for rolling back polarization. Right. Because then all of a sudden you're getting, you're, as Murphy said, you're competing for that center and you're going to get a lot more people that are living in districts in which they're they're less worried about the primary and they're more worried about a general election. Right. It makes general elections count again. Mm-hmm. Right now, a lot of them don't because everybody plays their inside primary game. And it's, it is it, it is sclerosis of our political system. All right, senior everything. Our friend Ron Brownstein, <laughs> check him out at The Atlantic or on CNN. It was a great discussion. Thanks for coming, pal. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Plug his book. Oh, yeah, yeah, Rock Me on the Water, which is a great book that Ron will now tell you about, available on Amazon.com. Rock Me on the Water is a story of how television, movies, music, and politics were all transformed in early 1970s L.A., another period like our own, when I think the culture was ahead of the politics in forecasting how the country was changing. Ron, really quickly, one other book recommendation that we were talking about before, the the book on 1850. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, David Potter's writing. So The Ending Crisis is probably my favorite book ever about American politics, certain by David Potter, finished uh, by uh, David Kennedy. And it's about the politics of the decade before the Civil War. And the reason people might want to read it now is because then as now, every possible issue and institution 
was funneled into the same conflict, right? I mean, they could not decide what, where, wh how to build the transcontinental railroad through the decade of the 1850s because they couldn't figure out, couldn't agree on whether it would go through the North or the South. Every issue was seen through the same prism of this mounting Cold War among the states. And I think in many ways, we are in a similar position where every possible choice is now seen through the red-blue lens. Um, and you have two blocks in the country that are increasingly living under very different sets of rules. Uh, abortion is banned or it's not, you know, uh, trans girls can play high school sports or not, you know, public protest has higher penalties or not, um, and have very different economic bases. And it's not quite as simple as it was then because obviously you have blue islands in the red states and red, you know, red peripheries in the blue states. But the basic idea of two antagonistic blocks uneasily sharing the same geographic space and funneling all issues into their core dispute, I think is actually, unfortunately, very timely. Damn. Ripped out of today's headlines. Today's headlines. No, no doubt bet. at all. All right. We got to wrap this thing up. I told you, Murphy. Wait, you were going to be smarter after we listened to Ron Brownstein. I recorded this podcast and I'm going to listen to it again because I'm telling you, if you've had a good thought in politics, Ron wrote it a week ago. So <laughs> I hope everybody gives this at least one, maybe two listens uh, because you heard some really smart stuff. Ron, thanks for joining us. Murphy, as always, good to see you, my friend. Great to see you guys. We'll be back soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.